morning and welcome to Cocoa Pods podcast. My name is Dr. Bola Sogade. I'm the host of this podcast. And uh, this is a public education podcast in which we talk about women's health and especially minority women's health uh, with an eye to maternity health. We look at the problems and how we can mitigate the, the uh, uh, problems and find solutions. Um, today we're recording uh, live from the United States Institute of Peace. And I am fortunate to have with me Dr. Wana Hutchinson Colas, MD, MBA. Dr. Hutchinson, good morning and welcome to Cocoa Pods podcast. Good morning and thank you for inviting me. This is a fabulous opportunity. Thank you. Dr. Hutchinson, if things are falling out for the older patients, you know, things are just, you know, they have a prolapse and they don't want medications, can we use like some rubber pessaries or can we just uh, close off the area completely? Great. And we're going to talk about this in the surgical part, which is your you're, area. You're, of stri- you're, you're shifting to surgery. <laughs> so um, with prolapse, that's the descent of organs inside and outside the vagina. They're, they're, they're um, conservative approaches as well. There's no medication approach for prolapse. However, the conservative approach is a pessary. A pessary is a device that is manufactured. Today, it's made from silicone, very easy to care for, very easy to fit. And I encourage all my patients to try it. The rationale is you can always step back. It doesn't hurt you. Um, It will give you time. As a provider, it will allow me to discern what exactly is your problem, especially if pain is your problem, because if I support your prolapse and you still have pain, it's not the prolapse that's causing the pain. If I support your prolapse and your pain resolves, it's the prolapse that's causing your pain. So maybe reconstructing the vagina is gonna help you. So because surgery is not reversible, it's a fantastic option for women to try a pessary. And it's easy to care for. Very few patients can't remove it and care for it. And um, it's a wonderful conservative option. If the pessary fails, depending on the prolapse, depending on the history, depending on previous surgery, the pessary can fail, meaning it doesn't hold that prolapse. And then surgery is the next option. Surgery can be reconstructive or obliterative. Reconstructive meaning to create a vaginal tube as normal as possible. And obliterative is to close the vagina as much as possible. Uh, um, Really, that's a technique. Now, why would someone pick one over the other? Uh, If someone has um, young, and I'm using young for, I have 80 year old young, so uh, functional, really desire full vaginal function. And most of the times when a woman desire full vaginal function it's for penetrative intercourse, right? Intercourse for, to tolerate penetration, that's for reconstruction. I have a very few women in my practice who do not want to have intercourse 
don't plan on it ever, but feel that reconstruction makes them more normal, then that's your decision to make. Why women want um, obliterative surgery? Obliterative surgery has a lower risk of recurrence. That means prolapse rarely ever comes back if you have a good obliterative surgery. That's number one. Number two, it can be it can be shorter, not necessarily shorter than reconstructive surgery, but it can be. And um, that's really and and you that's what they want, basically. So I, I don't go by the length of the surgery because um, um, even with my obliterative surgery, my counseling regarding do they want or not want their uterus is a whole other story. So, um, <laughs> and both uh, the obliterative surgery can be performed maintaining the uterus, whereas a reconstructive surgery probably should not be. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is so good, uh, Dr. Hutchinson. Um, you know, uh, and just let me, there's a lot of talk in the lay media about grafts in the vagina. You know, if you stay up late and watch TV, there's an attorney somewhere trying to talk about, did you have a vaginal graft and is it bothering you? I mean, what is your quick one thing about grafts to, you know, hold things up? First, I'm going to jump right at the attorney. Any attorney who does that is only looking for their bottom line, not for the individual's bottom line. Uh, Let me say that right off. Yes. So um, my approach and my counseling is patient centered. I do use mesh and the mesh graft I use is only in an abdominal approach today in America a vaginal uh, implant or approach is not approved by the FDA. It has been removed from the market. So if anyone is offering that, they're doing it off-label and ought not to be. Um, I've been in this space for before grafts and during grafts. So I can tell you when grafts came about, it was a great idea and a great invention because we were struggling with prolapse. And um, by the way, when I talk about reconstructive surgery, especially vaginal, we're not using any graft, we're using your tissue. And we can't change that tissue you were born with or the tissue that has aged and changed, we can't. And so the risk of prolapse is high. One third of women with severe prolapse who have a reconstructive surgery will recur. So with that knowledge, graft was designed and the mesh graft was designed. By the way, there are biologic grafts that are absolutely no good. So if I harvest a graft from my patient to put in the vagina, it's still their tissue. It's gone in no time. And then we went to pig graft, pig skin, all these other things. Well, the body knows it's not yours. So it lyses it and it's gone. So mesh we found was a good synthetic material, but there are other caveats. It had to be the right weave and et cetera, et cetera. Over the years of all the investigation and research, I think we do have an excellent um, mesh at this point in time. I've been using it for years before it became their number one, but we do have an excellent um, mesh. And if anyone has had a hernia surgery on the belly or in the groin, they always almost use mesh. And the mesh that I use is 10 times lighter than that mesh. That said, um, mesh 
augmentation is only approved for abdominal surgery at this point, abdominal pelvic reconstructive surgery. I think it's a fantastic um, option. My patients choose what they want. They said, doctor, choose for me. I don't know. I said, "Mm -mm." if you think you can't live with the idea because you're going to read that newspaper and then get fall in the trap with that guy looking for some money saying you need to take it out. It's not for you. And I can't make that decision for you, my dear. So you have to make that decision for yourself. I'm a full-fledged, qualified, awesome surgeon. I can work abdominally or vaginally. Vaginally, I'm only using um, permanent sutures. Abdominally, I will offer you a mesh operation. And um, if you cannot live with the fact that you have mesh in your body, it's not for you. That's simply how I put it, because I can do it either way with this, with the, the, the benefits that mesh tends to last a lot longer. So if you're young, you're a triathlete, if you tell me you can't live without doing that triathlon, without doing the marathon, I can tell you that your prolapse with native tissue repair is not going to hold you as well as a mesh repair. That said, the decisions are yours, and I'm going to guide you and support your decision. Did I cover what you wanted me to, doctor? I now see that I'm a mini Dr. Barbara Hutchinson. I, I, this is where I get my, my, my fire from. So. <laughs> but let me, we have just a few more questions to go. Thank you. This is great. You know, how about transgender surgery, you know, and, and health program for, for patients seeking gender affirming surgery and, you know, transition related care. I just want you to, to say something about that. Wow. She knows a little bit more about me. So yes, I I am in that space because I think as an OBGYN general, we ought to be able to provide compassionate care for all designated women at birth. That's what transgender men are. And so I, transgender men are the people I care for. They're females at birth. So they come with uterus, vaginas, and ovaries. And I think as caring physicians, period, we should try and assist our patients to be their best selves. And so ACOG, or Association That Supports OBGYN, came out very early in 2013, I want to say 2012 to 2014, asking us to support Um, individuals in this space because any marginalized individuals will not get good care and they need care. They need conversations about pregnancy, contraception, and being themselves. And let's face it, people are going to do what they want to do. So as a a provider who is just, uh, I think, compassionate to the care of all individuals, especially um, people who are females at birth, uh, I found that it was easy for me to become involved. And um, I spend a lot of time with the counseling. I do not provide hormone affirmation. 
I do not do phalloplasties, but um, gender dysphoria is real. And um, it's very real. And uh, it and just removing uh, an, an offensive organ to them, a uterus, can be helpful to their lives forever. And so uh, the patients I see, I follow the WPATH, the world path, um, the WPATH guidelines when I perform surgery on transgender patients. I perform hysterectomies and vaginectomies as requested by the bottom surgeon. And um, the discussion happens whether they want the ovaries or not. I often recommend removing the fallopian. I always recommend removing the fallopian tubes at the time of a hysterectomy because they have no use and it's cancer preventive. Uh, the ovaries is a whole other conversation that I don't think it's necessary to be removed, but it's advisable to be removed if someone is having a phalloplasty. But if there's no fallow, and most transgender individuals who are seeking affirmation surgery don't go on to have a phalloplasty. However, ovarian function is, can still be preserved um, and, and the ovaries still work even though there's some suppression on high-dose testosterone. The caveat I use and the, the counseling I give, because a lot of my men are um, 22 years old, I say you cannot predict whether you are going to um, develop a contraindication to testosterone. And when you remove those ovaries and you no longer can use testosterone, your bones will not benefit. And um, it's something to think about and think clearly about before I do the surgery. You come the day of surgery and you still want it done. And you said, I'm not paternal, maternalistic. I'm going to do what you want me to do. However, as I feel comfortable with the counseling that I provide. Oh, thank you. And then you mentioned the phalloplasty just in layman's terms. Oh. Uh, what is it? And is it the plastic? Who, who does it? A plastic surgeon with a urologist, they create a penis from different body parts and attach it, create a urethra and attach it. And then there's subsequent surgery required for it to be an erectile function, to have erectile function. Thank you. You know, there's one more difficult topic I want to discuss, and that is female genital mutilation and or female circumcision. It's a circumcision performed in some cultures on young girls and can you just please you know maybe make a statement about this and then I'm going to ask you the last question which is in regards to your advocacy work so <laughs> um <laughs> I I must ad admit that I don't know that much about female genital mutilation I, where I trained in Brooklyn we did see quite a bit of it in our training um, just because of the environment and um, a lot of immigrants lived in that area. And even back then, you would have individuals who asked us to do that. And we're like, no, 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 we cannot do that. And I, But I think overall in the world and in the countries that advocate for those things, it has become, it has become a lot less 
because these women are advocating for themselves. And I think it is, it's illegal now in some of those countries. So I'm happy for that. Um, the damage that, that has been done is already done. It's very hard to reverse. It cannot be reversed, but there can be some incisional treatment that can enlarge the caliber of the vagina because scarring occurs when you do any surgery. And the area of scarring is very difficult to reverse. It would require a lot of work on plastics, augmentation of other, other tissues. So that would be where um, our field come in, uh, would be able to help, help women who have had already had circumcision. But removing of the clitoris and those things, you, you, can't, re- you can't get it back. And as you look at, um, we talk about transgender individuals that are having these, these changes. For example, for, for a trans female who is getting a neo-vagina, when the, the, the penis is removed, the glands is preserved and attached with the nerve and blood supply. So it's sensation, it's sensate right? You can have sensations, whereas women who have had this removed, there's no place to go back and get that sensitive organs to attach. So that's that's pretty um, unfortunate. But the good news is that there are advocates all over the world, even in, in, even in America, because people migrate with their customs. It's certainly illegal here. And I know in many countries, it has now become illegal. It was not for the benefit of the woman, of course. Wow, Dr. Hutchinson, thank you so much. This has been so uh, educational. And, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to educate women, especially, uh, uh, you know, about maternity issues, minority women, women in low resource uh, America or low resource countries. And what, what you are big on advocacy. And because we see that there's a need for us specialists and professionals in women's health care, not only to perform the surgeries with our God-given gifts, but also to educate women. Can you just tell us as we close what you do with your role in advocacy? Oh, well, right now what I do is educate students. I, from college, high school, um, I spend a lot of time doing that, but we can, all of us can advocate in so many ways. For example, in areas of food deserts, we all vote in America. We all need to know who our representatives are. We need to let them know what we expect. You go in the areas, we need fresh produce. We can't be fighting this war on obesity and have food deserts. Yes, there's a supermarket there, but you look, you go in the supermarket, you walk around the outside where all the goodies are, the real vegetables, it's exorbitant prices. And if you find the vegetables, you and I wouldn't buy them. You know, we can go elsewhere to buy them, but they're two days old and wilting. That's not healthy foods. So in order to fight this obesity battle and to promote health, we have to get or politicians or people in the environment on the ground to encourage this 
influx of good foods and make it available. When we give WIC food stamps, it shouldn't be only for the bad cheese and whatever. We need to be able to advocate that it should be healthy stuff. We need to encourage our environment. If you get a little plot of land down the street, get together and plant some good stuff because it can benefit the community. We as a people need to find the education. They're talking about now um, beyond burgers and these um, substitute meats that you grow in a lab. It's not good for us. And if we're not telling our communities these things, they won't know. The average person won't know. I had to learn it other ways. We have wealthy individuals who we think support us and will give money and send it abroad. But they are the largest owners of farmland in America, and it's not to produce fresh fruit, people, or food. So we need to get to educating our community, our Black bodies, and realize that there's so much we can do for ourselves as pre prevention, but we need the means to do so. We need the education to do so. And yes, every person who votes can stick their finger out and say, no, I can't vote for you because you're not promoting health in my environment. When you bring in you know, you know, something simple like that, I know they're not doing that as much anymore, the Coca-Cola bottle and thing, instead of bringing me some clean water, you know, having an access to clean water, and I don't mean Dasani, I mean clean water is a privilege we see what happened in, in Michigan. It happens a lot down south too, burning things in the environment, littering with all the garbage, and then you live amongst there. It can't be healthy for your skin, your, your biggest organ. So we have to take bite sizes every time you can. Advocate for people who don't have a voice. Um, right now, I'm working with re-entry uh, re people, incarcerated women. We have brought so much education to the prisons of how you take care of women, a menopausal woman, a woman having periods in prison. These are individuals who have unfortunate circumstances, but we have to stand up and help them get out and rebuild their lives and be healthy individuals. So, you know, you there's so many ways you can advocate for women. And I, I say women for all, but women play such a unique role and a place in society. And without that person, you affect the men, the children, the parents. So um, I, I just find your little area. You can't do it all, but find your little area. And the generation coming up, are, they're going to replace me. I may not be around tomorrow or anytime in the near future, but if you can educate the generation coming up to be advocates and to have a voice and use their voice, you'll have done some good. Wow. <laughs> Dr. Hutchinson, I am just so you know impressed by you. You are this highly technical, you know, robotic, minimally invasive pelvic reconstructive uh, surgeon, and you, you take time to give back like this to your community. I am so very grateful uh, to you for coming to this podcast. 
anybody listening can see that you're a natural teacher and I am a direct beneficiary of your knowledge and of your skills and you are, are the prototype mentor really and I am just so grateful to you I know my medical students and my students and my residents are all watching you know but this is you know this is almost 30 years after the fact and we're still in each other's lives and you know for that I'm very grateful you know and I'm grateful for just the way you've educated us this is a a, a subspecialty a sub subspecialty of obstetrics and gynecology that you've talked about in a way that you know even my you know mom uh, uh, that, that that lives uh, here can relate to and can understand. So thank you for just taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for educating us. Thank you for the work you do, you know, out of your busy schedule. I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on this podcast today. Thank you for asking me, to inviting me, and um, I hope everyone benefits. And um, I really appreciate and I'm humbled for all the kind words you have given me. Thank you. Thank you.